0: hey this is bill in the morning broadcasting from my dead cousin's bunker he was a crackpot conspiracy guy but even a crackpot is right twice a day currently balmy 73 degrees thanks to the still semi-functioning thermostat thermostats for all your thermo needs two stats Get your thermostat stat stat with thermostat, thermostats. Now we have 10% more stat per therm. Stat not included, void, we prohibited. Sorry, Tennessee. Remember when we had sponsors? <laughs> that was fun. In other news, the phone is broken, because I broke it when I don't call in or do, see what happens. Let's slap on that unnamed, unloved CD and get out the Garfield. Panel one, Garfield is eating lasagna. He says, he who fights monsters take heed lest he become a monster. Panel two, John is wearing a Halloween monster mask sneaking up on Garfield. He taps him on the shoulder. Panel three, Garfield is so scared by John in the mask that he's blasted off. There's just a dust. John says, I am unworthy of love. Hmm. I don't get it. Oh well. Also, at some point, I wrote in the margin, life can only be understood backwards, but we must live it forwards. Wow, deep, real deep, Phil. I stole that quote from someone. Plato, John Candy, Fairfield. Isn't this fun? <laughs> it's like the old days when the show was new and fun and just me, Phil Etrog, and this is Phil in the morning. Or Noon or night. Fill all the time. Fill just filling time. Fill her up. But I wasn't always Phil Etrog. Etrog is my wife's last name. My dead wife, Ginny. Ginny Etrog. They changed it to that when they came to America. Why? I don't know. Sound less Jewish, maybe? doesn't make sense. Etrog is a Jewish fruit. Did you know that? I didn't when I met her. Etrogs are like a lemon sort of thing. They look like a bumpy lemon. They're sour. You don't eat them. Etrogs. Etrogs are for looking at and smelling. There's this one Jewish holiday. You probably don't know about it. Uh, Sukkot. It's the festival of booths. Or not the one you sit in or the ones that kill Lincoln. Booths like little huts, like step up to the kissing booth. or, Yeah, it sounds weird, right? But, well, really all holidays are. For Sukkot, you build a little hut booth outside and hang up fruits and vegetables. It's called a sukkah. It's supposed to mimic the kind of houses the Israelites built when they left Egypt and were wandering in the desert for 40 years. Well, that's what they say, but really it's from the huts the farmers would build when they'd come to the city for the harvest. It's a harvest holiday, but modern Jewish still build these little huts in their backyards and string up fruit and vegetables. Ginny, my dead wife, and... Her probably dead brother, Nebi, short for Nebuchadnezzar, would always sit in her family sukkah and play cards. Gin, mostly, or rummy. I get gin and rummy mixed up. It's the one where you don't put down until the end. But anyway, they'd play cards, and every year, every fucking year, Nebi would at some point lean back in the sukkah, big stupid grin on his face, and say, I'm Caesar in the salad. And we'd all smile, and his parents would laugh, because that's how it was with Nebi. He was, he was, whew, we had a contentious relationship. He had a prosthetic leg. Did I mention that? Does that change how you view him? I mean, maybe in your mind that explains why he was so haughty and smug. Oh, he's overcompensating. No, nah, but he was like that before. He lost his leg in a car accident. Tragic because he was high, less tragic. In a car that his ex-girlfriend's dad bought him. Tragic level unchanged, but strange. Also, his ex-girlfriend's dad was always flirting with Nevi and trying to give him back rubs, but was still married. Did things like buy him a car after she broke up with him. His ex-parents were super Christian. In fact, the crash car had a bumper sticker that said, Keep the Christ in Christmas. He was also really funny. I would laugh in spite of sometimes how jealous I was of him, because he just floated through all of it. Uh, but I'm biased. I... When we saw that part of him, the part of him that would sit in the sukkah and say, I'm Caesar in the salad. I never saw the Nebbi alone in his room, the nebby who would get high and drive around because he once said, I can only drive high because it's the only way it makes sense. He said that, and we still let him drive. We still... The etrogs would all sit in the sukkah on Sukkot, and Nebi would make his dumb joke. The etrog fruit, the bumpy lemon, is part of the Sukkot blessings. There is also the lulaf. The lulaf is this thing made out of the branches of three trees, a palm tree, a willow tree, and some third tree, I don't remember. I should, but anyway, they make like a three-pronged stick out of the branches, and they called it a lulaf. They take that and the etrog, and every day during Sukkot, because Sukkot is like a week long, because lots of Jewish holidays are multiple days for some reason. They take the lulav and etrog and they shake it in every direction to praise God. Of course, there's an argument about in which hand you hold the lulav, and which the etrog, because if there's a possibility to argue about something, why not? Lulav in the right hand, etrog in the left. No, wait, the other way. But Rabbi such and such says this. But the great Rebbe, somebody important, says that. So... Somehow they became the Etrog family, the Bumpy Lemon family. Jonah and Hilde Etrog and their wonderful, damaged, brilliant, weird kids. Nebuchadnezzar Alexander Etrog and Guinevere Wendy Etrog. This wonderful family, this amazing collection. And they're just gone. Who's left? Me. The guy who married in and became a Bumpy Lemon, too. Right? It was great. That really was, because, because, yeah, I know what you want. You want to know what happened. How I'm still here recording this show for you, broadcasting across the spore-filled ether. How did my meeting go? Did I go? Did I chicken out? Why is chicken the coward bird? The chicken is the one that crossed the road. Why? to get to the other side. It crossed that road, that dangerous, busy, mushroom-filled road, not for glory, not for history, not for fame, but merely to get to the other side. What was on that other side? Doesn't matter. What matters is he crossed. He went to that gas station convenience store near what was once a highway, where there was a roast chicken place once. Oh, that's awkward. That chicken shouldn't have seen that. That would just be horrible. One time... uh, One time I saw some pigeons pecking and throwing away fried chicken in the street and I was like, oh, if you guys only knew. But instead they blithely pecked at their distant relative. Maybe they did know. Maybe pigeons and chickens hate each other. Yes, I went. Yes, I'm back. It was only about a three mile hike which seems so short, but nowadays (laughs) I decided to walk because I thought that'd be easier. Not draw attention. The car would I don't even know if it would start, the, the noise. and I walked. It was odd, going out of the bunker. I wasn't sure what time it was. I, I had, early listeners might remember when I got mad at the clock, so I kept messing with the hands before finally feeding them to the composting toilet. Cell phone charger situation, it, it was daytime. I, I could figure that out by the sunlight. Sunlight is weird. You forget that it's not like regular light, how it feels on your skin, Way your eyes, deal with it. I sort of started crying. As I looked around the house, I saw a large mushroom was growing through the middle of it. It had pushed through the roof, but it seemed indifferent to me. And then I realized how quiet everything was. No birds, no bugs, nothing. The trees had large bumps that were like little spore sacks. Sometimes as I walked near them and they burst with little clouds of different colors. I wrapped a towel around my mouth and I put on goggles also a hat, gloves, very fashion-forward. They were in the emergency kit. You remember when we played emergency kit dress-up? That was like show number three. Wow, oh, memories. Anyway, it seemed the mushrooms had taken over everything. Maybe they'd done too good a job because there were several that were brown and shriveled up. They looked dead. Some had other mushrooms growing on them. There, there were some mushrooms that were like a 100 feet tall and you could barely see the cat part way up in the sky. It felt alien, like I was on a new planet. As I walked, I'd sometimes hear other noises rustling. I'd stop and wait, but I never saw anything, at least at first. My cousin's house is near some woods and, and you have to walk down a long driveway to reach the main road. As I was walking past some trees, I noticed some blue and red cap mushrooms on the trees were moving very slowly. I stopped and watched them. They were just moving in very slow spiral patterns on the bark of the tree. I pulled one off. It was about the size of a grapefruit. I turned it over and saw its little roots were wagging around, feeling for something. It freaked me out a bit, so I dropped it on the ground. I kept moving, and I got to the road. As I walked, I hit the crest of a hill. I, I looked out at the vast fields of mushrooms. I heard a strange humming noise, which I think was coming from some of the mushrooms, but when I'd get close, they'd stop. Maybe there was just the blood in my ears. I wasn't used to walking around this much. I also saw these super long stalks, like 10 or 20, attached to these giant mushrooms that were hovering. They were just floating in the sky. I'm not sure how they were doing this, but there they were. Their stalks would at times touch the ground, almost like they were pushing off to remain airborne or or change directions, kind of like how swimmers push off the ledge, but in, in slow motion. All the mushrooms seemed to be moving really slowly. I headed to the convenience store. It was getting dark by the time I found my way there. There was a pale purple glow from many of the mushrooms. Huddled behind the register, ate a few bags of Cool Ranch Doritos. I also drank some Powerade. It was gross, but electrolytes. Then, just as the clock in the store struck big window clock it was a promotional clock for the lottery, the magazine spinner rack split in half as a secret door opened on the floor. Several women in pink tuxedos wielding katana swords emerged out of the floor hole. With them was another woman in a beige pantsuit. She said her name was Ramona Quimby, age 48, and she was the Undersecretary of Fisheries and was currently the highest ranking government official still alive, and thus the de facto president of the occupied states of America. She had a large scar down one side of her face and she opened her jacket and took out two silver pistols. She handed me one and said, son, you wanna take your country back? Are you ready to get grungus on this fungus? She then explained grungus meant to attack and kill mushrooms. It was an obscure Eastern Lithuanian term. She then told me that there was an old Lithuanian legend about killer mushrooms. And once the great Lithuanian knight Slavis the Elder fought a toadstool that threatened the king of Vilnius with a long knife. Will you be my mushroom eradicating knight? De facto President Ramona Quimby, age 48, asked. I took one of the silver pistols. I hope these mushrooms evolved an ass, because I'm going to kick it up and down Payne Street. And we kicked the door down at the convenience store and destroyed all the mushrooms. We did it. Me and the Katana-wielding pink tuxedo Secret Service and de facto President Ramona Quimby, age 48. Yeah, that's what happened. I headed to the convenience store. It was getting dark by the time I found my way there. There was a pale indigo glow from many of the mushrooms. I huddled behind the register and ate a few bags of nacho cheese Doritos. I also drank some Gatorade. It was gross, but electrolytes. As I waited, I scratched a bunch of the lotto tickets behind the counter. One was a winner for $2,400, but I didn't think I could cash it in. As I waited, I heard a small tapping noise. I picked up a rather large beef jerky stick to defend myself. I got up, and there was a shadow. The shadow belonged to a person in a ratty cape with a hood. The hood was pulled up, obscuring her face. Her broad shoulders kept the cape in place. Her hands were calloused and her nails chipped. She stopped and turned to me. You came, she said. i have been listening for so long. The phone, that was a bitch to figure out, but she sounded so familiar, but... She gently slid her fingers under the hood and pushed it back. Her hair fell in a mess of curls around her round, freckled face. It was Ginny? I barely could croak out the words. It was her, but the woman shook her head. I'm Natasha, her twin. But she didn't have a, I started. Natasha told me that Ginny and she were born on a ship that was trying to find a new Northwest passage in Northern Canada. She and my wife were actually the children of the female captain, Alexandra Bliss. If they could find this passage, then they'd open a shipping route that would export cheap feminist transistor radios called transistor radios from a secret facility they set up near Yellowknife. Feminist transistor radios were a big commodity at the time of Ginny and Natasha's birth. However, just as they were being born, a large spaghetti and yetis attack. Spaghetti being the name for a group of yetis. The yetis killed the sailors, as yetis and sailors are natural enemies. But the babies were spared, as they were innocent. But the yetis argued about what was to be done with the babies. During the argument, one yeti, Abominable Betty the Yeti, took one of the babies and ran off. She didn't know how to survive on her own outside of the spaghetti, but she did all she could to take care of the baby, even at the expense of her own health. She eventually, near death, collapsed at the tent of the north northernmost rabbi, Shlomo of the North. He found abominable Betty and the baby, boy, the vault, a baby. He took the baby and ran to the synagogue where the famed bush pilot Eight Crashes Moisha was sleeping. Eight Crashes Moisha was named for having crashed a plane eight times, even though it should have only crashed once. Shlomo gave the baby to Eight Crashes and then told him to take the baby to be raised by his pen pal, Jonah Etra. So, eight crashes. Moisha, flew his little plane to a bigger plane and then took the bigger plane to America where he handed the baby off to Jonah Etrog to raise as his own and thus Ginny Etrog. Meanwhile, Natasha was raised by a different group of Yetis who knew how to raise a baby. Eventually though, the Yetis lost her in a high-stakes game of paigao poker in Macau. Yetis have a weakness for gambling, which sometimes works out in their favor like when they want a trip to Macau, but sometimes not like when they lose their adopted daughter in a high-stakes game of paigao poker. <laughs> The man that won Natasha was called Genghis Dan, a half-Mongolian, half-Russian count who lived in a yurt in Ulaanbaatar. He taught her to ride horses and to hunt using an eagle. She grew up free and wild, and once the mushrooms came, she decided to leave Mongolia and fight the fungal forces. Her best fighting eagle, Wings McWingface, died after a sneak attack by a crafty shiitake. She then became a wandering mushroom killer for hire, until one day as she was passing through... She heard my broadcast. She reached out and here we were. She told me she had an extra horse. So I joined her and we traveled the world, hunting down mushrooms and saving humanity. That's what happened. I headed to the convenience store. It was getting dark by the time I found my way there. There's was a pale pink glow from many of the mushrooms. I huddled behind the register and ate a few bags of flaming hot Cheetos. I also drank some vitamin water. It was gross, but uh, electrolytes. I waited for a while, and I was about to give up when two men walked into the store. They were nervous, their clothes ripped and dirty. Phil? They called in a nervous whisper. I was trepidatious, but I stood up. They reflexively backed away, but upon seeing me, they smile. They took me to a small camp under a bit of broken overpass. There were about 20 other survivors. They had restarted civilization. Well, sort of. They had taken about nine or ten RVs and sort of joined them together modern-day wagon train, one of the men said. One of the women was keeping watch from atop the RVs. She had a rifle. The mushrooms come at night, she said. They were heating up some beans over a fire. It's lucky we found you, they said. I asked if this was all that's left. They, They said they didn't know. It felt odd to be around people. They all seemed as lost and broken as me, but in their own way. Gave me a small bowl of beans. It was warm, and it was... that was the best food I'd eaten, and 40 days. I told them about doing the radio show, recited some Garfield strips. We laughed for a moment, felt almost normal. I was afraid I'd say something that would upset them, or but that was all fine. We fought off the mushrooms when they appeared. We lived quiet lives. We found more survivors. Sometimes people died, sometimes they lived. We scavenged, we cried, we laughed. Sometimes we'd play music, sing new sort of regular took hold. Pete and Cameron, two of the oldest members of the caravan, got married and we had a party for them. The wall at the back of the underpass was used for writing messages to those who died, to the lost. It was a memorial, a graveyard, a place to pray or cry or meditate. It was a small, calm island and a sea that was always roiling, always churning. We lived a quiet new life. That's what happened. Jenny was working at a small museum. There was this collector who wanted to donate a painting. It was by a sort of famous artist. I forget who, but let's let's say Rembrandt. It wasn't Rembrandt, but let's say Rembrandt because I don't remember the actual guy's name. The problem was... There were doubts whether this Rembrandt was authentic or a fake. It was an old painting, maybe 300 or so years old. There was a time in the 1800s when the painting was considered genuine, and then it was declared fake in the early 1910s, then real again in the 50s, and since then, there was no real consensus. Now back when it was painted, some of these painters often had schools where they would have students finish paintings started by Rembrandt. Or the students would paint in the style of Rembrandt, and he'd sign it because well, it sort of was his. The fact that a student did it didn't matter because it came out of his school. Later we started to get a little bit more serious about it, whether it was Rembrandt's hand that actually held the brush from stretch to finish. Back to Ginny in the museum. The Collector wanted it displayed as a Rembrandt, since it was probably a Rembrandt. Ginny wasn't happy with that. She wanted to say, from the Rembrandt School, or possible Rembrandt. But the head of the museum wanted to just label it a Rembrandt, partly because she was friends with the Collector, but Well, also for marketing. If it was an actual Rembrandt, she could market the painting as such. That name would bring people in. People were much more excited because it was an artist they'd heard of. It was famous. Having the painting live in the space between being real and fake, being ambiguous, museums don't like that. This curator hated that. She didn't want Schrodinger's Rembrandt. I mean, does it matter who painted it? If you see a piece of art and you are moved by it, if it speaks to you, does it suddenly lose its value if it's not actually by the famous guy? Ginny also told me there was a chance the painting was a complete fake. As the painting was lost for several years during the Cold War, then rediscovered in Hungary, they couldn't prove it was the original one. Some forgers were amazing at making fakes, but what if we call it fake and it's real? This art, this real part of art history gets thrown away because of a few missing years. That's crazy, I argued. She'd argue that a curator had a responsibility to present the truth to the museum goer, or at least do her best as the truth was too big to really present. But what happens when you don't know the truth? How does a museum present the truth when it doesn't know the truth? <laughs> then we started arguing about what truth even was. It got abstract. Let's skip over that because then you start getting into nothing can be something, and all things are possible, and maybe it's just the dream of, God ah, it's too much. But, she finally said, curators shouldn't lie. They simplify, they instruct, they bend, sure, but saying Rembrandt and splashing across the marketing was too much for her. They'll think things that aren't things. Does art exist beyond the artist? Is it defined and constrained by the actual hand, the, the personal story? I mean, there are tons of assistants who build pieces for artists. You think Jeff Koons actually builds those balloon dog sculptures? James Patterson has has a whole school to teach people to write the books he puts his name on. Is the idea the art or the execution? If Rembrandt sketches out the idea of the painting, blocks it out, designed it, but then handed off the actual painting duties to a student, who's the artist? Does it matter? If it makes you feel like it's a Rembrandt, isn't that enough? I mean, in a way, isn't all art fake? A landscape isn't really there. That portrait isn't really the person. I mean, isn't that what movies do? Try to fake you out. Acting is pretending. We watch these people. We feel for them. We believe them. that Their romances, their pain. We let them feel things so we can feel them. Catharsis, empathy. We believe them, even when we know it's fake. But what they lie to make us feel is real, right? Or, Or is it all just... Lying liars making beautiful bullshit. Isn't that what keeps Silenus away? His words, his darkness, his, our, we went to this art show and and the pieces were really, (laughs) like, I didn't get into it. It was too out there for me. I'm complaining to Ginny. I don't get this. What is this? Is this even art? She just said, at its most basic sense, art is just trying to get you to see the world in a little different way. That's it. You don't have to solve it. Just let it change your perception, even just a fraction of a degree. The rest is commentary. I don't care if it's true or... Then again, when things are based on a true story and we find out they changed everything, we get annoyed. Even though a movie shouldn't be teaching us history, should anything, all our history comes from some biased source. I mean, if we want a story to be true, even our own personal story, doesn't it become true? Our brains, our memories, We remember things wrong all the time. I mean, the way we remember is so faulty. When we think about a memory, our brain rewrites that memory. Like, I remember hanging out with Alan Chang at the mall. I'm remembering that now, and my brain is writing that memory over the actual memory. Now it's distorted. Was it the mall? Was it somewhere else? Am I merging all those memories of us hanging out at the mall into this one time? Were my other friends there? Was Billy there too? When the story becomes the legend, print the legend. In college, there was this girl that Ginny and I hung out with, Erica. We thought we were so cool because Erica was a lesbian and we were cool with it. We're so progressive. But we immediately put all these ideas on Erica. Our ideas of what she should be. (laughs) We'd meet another lesbian and be all, oh, you should date Erica. And Erica, you should date her. Or Erica, you should go to the pride parade in the city. Erica, blah, blah. One night, it was late, and we were near Tipple Hall, and Erica was smoking her clove cigarettes because that's what you did when you were a cool theater kid. I was saying something about how much I love Sleater Kinney, and she was like, stop. Erica said she didn't know what she was, that she doesn't feel gay, and she doesn't even know what gay means, that she doesn't like men, but she doesn't really like women. Really, she doesn't want to be with anyone. But she's happy with that, and she's sick of how all we do is try to pin her into a box that means X, Y, and Z. What she is is something else, and maybe it has a name or doesn't, and maybe she can't even begin to put her arms around it. She's just so sick of how excited people get to just draw a circle around her. She's not one thing. She's not a constant thing. Sometimes all she is and all she wants to be is a person who can tell me to fuck off. We always want to reduce things, to shrink everything down, because it's easy. Binaries. We readers digest people, people we hate, people we love. We do that to history, art, life, relationships, flatten it, because we can't live with so many things, or we just be overwhelmed. This person is this. They're a jerk. They're nice. They're hot. They're ugly. They're sometimes pretty, sometimes they're gross. Sometimes they've had a bad day, and... You love them and they're just angry. Sometimes you're really smart and intuitive and sometimes you're yelling at the couch because you can't find your keys. What happens when the complexity of the world gets reduced to just you and the mushrooms? It's just you, only not you, me, just me, only me. I headed to the convenience store. It was getting dark by the time I found my way there. There was a pale orange glow from many of the mushrooms. I huddled behind the register and ate a, a lot of everything. Also drank a lot of Dr. Pepper. It was warm, but sugar. I waited, I ate more, I drank more. I felt sick. No one came. I waited a day, then another day. I would hear the mushrooms outside. I'd pick some of them off the walls of the store and smash them under my foot. But no one came. The world was empty. I was really concerned that, that no one is out there. No one is listening to this. That I, that I just remembered this place from when we drove by it, making our way to the bunker. I'm not preserving culture or humanity. This broadcast isn't going out to survivors. It's, it's going out to whatever comes next, to what happens after us. I'm the last dinosaur broadcasting to the mammals of the future. Poor choice, universe. Poor fucking choice. There's a thing they have in natural history museums. It's called a holotype. The holotype is the one example of an animal that represents the whole species. They have a stuffed lion. That lion is all lions. The bugs with the little pins in them, they represent those species. The holotype is the model, the representative for all of that bug or fish or shark or slug or ant or elephant. They keep that one to be the example of what that animal should be. What should the holotype of humanity be? Who would you pick to represent the average singular human being? What is the typical person? Who do you think of when you close your eyes? Not me, I wouldn't pick me. I'm not a holotype, I'm not, I don't want it, I, shit. Please, anyone else, is anyone there? Is there a reason to keep going? Is this just a mushroom planet? Are you out there, were you? Are you still? I went, I was ready, we had a deal. Why, why didn't you show up? Aren't I enough? Can't I, don't I mean something? We had a deal, we had, we, we were supposed to do this together. You weren't supposed to die to leave me alone. Together, we promised. We why Why? I loved you so fucking much. Why did you do this to me? I'm sorry, I I, I broke the phone. I broke the phone. I broke it everything, bro. Ah, it's okay. I forgive you. I hope you can forgive me for lasting this long, for still being here, for not telling you everything. (laughs) They say when you talk on the radio, you should imagine the person you're talking to. It helps to, uh, to help you see an audience. I don't always do it, but I, when I do, sometimes I see you. I talk with you even when I'm not talking. I hold you in the arms of my memory, Jenny. I talk to you. <laughs> I talk to him. Even though I've been hiding him from him. An easel always oh, been there looming in the shadows of our son. Our boy our baby. Beckett love at, at Trock. I fail. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't anymore. Not right now, sorry. I